Hello, beautiful people of Revolution. Okay, a couple of the ladies. But that doesn't work because I've already got a lady. I need some of you men to hear something. Okay, thank you, Clifton. That'll work. Um, no, Grant, yes. Okay, okay, everybody. Uh, you, as you know, um, I worked at camp this, this summer, and uh, one of my awesome, one of my favorite campers is here. So everybody, just uh, say hello to Grant when you get a chance. Um, yeah, right now, one, two, three. Okay, good. Hopefully you all will feel welcome here if, you are not, if you're just a visitor. Um, it's good to see you guys. Um, nothing extraordinarily new with the announcements this week. Um, we have some small groups. So raise your hand if you are currently involved in a small group weekly. Raise your hand. Okay, it's good. It's about 50%, maybe. 50, 60%. So we'd like to see uh, everybody at least, you know, try and attend. You know, we, we want growth here, um, and you should want growth too. And so if you're not trying to attend a Bible study or a small group, something like that weekly, um, just going to church once a week um, is not really going to cut it. Um, so try and get involved. Um, Stephen uh, has one after uh, the service on Sundays. Um, David has one on Wednesdays. Ryan usually does two on Wednesdays. But this week, uh, his daughters are, the, you know, the, the side affair is, is this week, so his daughters will have goats. So if you guys want to go out and support um, the, yes, the goats, <laughs> um, they would love that. <laughs> his, <laughs> you know, his kids, that's interchangeable with goats. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and uh, Chris Jones has a Bible study on Friday nights at the Rev House. Um, so if you guys want to get involved with that, that'd be great. And for you guys um, who are getting ready to go back to Shawnee, we will be having one start up in a couple weeks. So we get to see you there. Um, trash pickup, that is this Friday, this coming Friday, um, at 5.30 to 6 um, at the Rev House. So show up, and, um, and the weekend, the Friday after that, the, the third Friday of every month, we do trash pickups. And so while it's still summer, while it's still um, nice and warm, um, we're going to try and keep doing those ministry things uh, in the community so that, um, you know, we can not just give out free food or not just make the community look better, but be able to engage in conversation um, and share the gospel with people who really need it. Um, so that's the goal here. And if we pray real quick, and then we'll get, get greeting, and David will give us the message. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we just thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for um, the breath of life that you've given us, and uh, most of all for um, saving us on the cross. God, uh, I ask that you speak through Dave, and um, we all get a better glimpse of who you are um, throughout the message. That's all that we do for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's up, Revolution? I'll take that. That's cool. So usually whenever I start off sermons here, I always say this is like the most awkward part. Um, usually I start off joking around. Like I try to tell stories, make everyone laugh a little bit, try to get everyone settled and draw you guys in. Um, that's not what we're doing tonight. Uh, that's not for every sermon. And that's not what we're, we're about this evening. Uh, tonight we're going to get real. Um, talk about some darker, deep kind of stuff. Um, we're going to be talking about trials. And we're going to be talking about God's goodness. And how we're supposed to confront those things. And how we find, ultimately we find peace through prayer because we are in Christ. And we're doing that, one, because it, it, God is sovereign. And it came up in our sermon outline that we would be in this text this evening in Philippians. Um, but I, I know that for some of us here... Um, 
this message is going to resonate a lot because I know a lot of people here are going through different things. Um, and I know that just in general, messages like this tend to resonate with people because, you know, for every one person that life is going great for, there is another person who is at the end of their rope, right? For every wedding, there's a funeral, right? Always. For every person that things are going great for, someone else's life is out of control. And there's always going to be struggle and there's always going to be difficulties around the corner, even if your life is going great. And you need this to put this in your mind so that you have something to hold to whenever life gets rough. Right? But, we, but we all go through hard and difficult times, right? Like we say it all the time, life can suck and sometimes it sucks worse than others. Um, and, you know, we don't really know what to do. Um, like, you know, there's times whenever everything feels like chaotic um, and you feel like you've completely lost control. Um, like a death, like we, like we just said, like a death or you're having family problems or you're not getting along with your spouse or you just lost your job or your job's trying to make you do something that, that you don't want to do or it's trying to move you or there's problems within your church or there's problems within the Christian community in general, um, in your area, you know, whatever it might be. Um, big problems, and you're just at a loss for words. Um, like there's no peace, and like everything is caving in and crashing down around your ears. Right? We all go through stuff like that. But what are we supposed to do in those moments? What are we supposed to do? The Bible commands us commands us to rejoice over and over and over and over again. It's actually supposed to be one of the distinguishing traits of believers. And, and, and in the book that we're in, Philippians, in this letter that Paul writes, that people actually, some scholars will call it the, the letter of joy, because Paul says rejoice and joy so many times, um, and per capita more than any other letter uh, that he writes. So we're commanded to rejoice, but sometimes that feels completely impossible. So what are we supposed to do? If this is a command and it's not an option, how are we supposed to rejoice in the middle of these dark times in our lives? And how do we guard our joy? Now, that's what Paul's going to hit on for us this evening is the answer to that question. Right? How we're supposed to live life in the midst of chaos and still be at peace somehow. And we're going to see that this is a supernatural thing. It doesn't come from human works or human reason or logic or figuring out your problems at all. This comes from God. It is a gift from him to feel this kind of internal peace whenever you feel like life's going to hell around you. Um, and we're going to see that the heart of knowing, like the heart of all of this, all of this peace is knowing that God loves his people. And that God is always good and that God is in control of everything and that God is never far away from us who are in Christ. All right, so we're just going to go into the text and we're going to see what Paul has to say. Um, Tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Uh, we say it all the time, if you're new here, the Bible you have is hard to read. Take one of those blue Bibles with you. It's, it's the NLT, the New Living Translation. Uh, but tonight, we're not actually using the, the NLT. The NLT is solid, uh, but we're going to use the English Standard Version, or the ESV. Uh, I think it hits closer to, to the original wording better here. Um, but let, let's hit this, ESV, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. A better translation still is the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Right, so we see there the very first thing that Paul says. He tells us to rejoice in the, in the Lord, and then he even repeats himself. And that's telling us to listen up. It's telling us to pay attention. Um, always, whenever the Bible repeats itself, especially in the same verse or the same uh, paragraph or the same chapter, you always pay extra close attention. Right? So rejoice. Uh, but first, let, let's take this command to rejoice in the context of this whole letter, right? Let, let's backpedal, let's review the current situation going on in Philippi, and Paul's telling them to rejoice anyway. All right, we can look and we can see that the Philippians are being persecuted in their own city, right? They're being hated by the people around them that they work with, um, like a big uh, social, societal hatred. Um, there's job loss for some of them, for sure, uh, for their faith. They're being ostracized by family and friends and, and again, society at large. They're being pushed to the margins and not, um, and not being cared for, and they're being hated. Um, and possibly um, some of them are dying for their faith, or at least um, the potential of being killed for being a Christian is looming over them. Right? So that's the kind of persecution that they're enduring. Um, we see that Paul is in prison. And the Philippians love Paul, and they're worried about him. And that's actually one of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter, to let them know that he's cool and that the gospel is progressing. Um, And we also see in this letter that the Philippians would be worried about that there's fighting going on in the church. Like we talked about Euodia and Syntyche last week, that there was a potential division brewing within the church. right? So whenever we consider those three things, we see that the Philippians have very good reasons to be afraid. They have great reasons to be anxious Um, to worry, to stress out, and we would all be prone to do the same things in these situations. And and the truth is we are prone to do the same things, right? Like, think about it. Like, most of us stress out whenever, like, our phones don't work fast enough, right? Or our car gets a flat tire. Um, At least that's me. Um, And we stress out about that, not to mention whenever something really bad happens, Right? Again, like you lose your job or someone dies or there's a huge fight going on in your family or something like that. We, we lose our minds and we despair. We act like we don't know what to do and that God is far away from us. And yet Paul commands us in these times, right, to the Philippians, so to us as well, he commands us to rejoice. Right? And this isn't superficial joy. This is not fake joy. Right? It's not like singing show tunes at a funeral. That's not what Paul is saying. Um, but rather, Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the gospel, in being united with Christ and being made at peace with God. That's what he's saying. Paul is telling us to rejoice in the fact that God doesn't change and that he has declared us righteous with him by what Jesus has done on the cross for us to reconcile us back to God, paying for our sin, giving us his righteous life to be judged off of. Right, so because of what Jesus has done, we are good with God, and God himself is good. He is unchanging. He loves us. Nothing can shake this one great truth. So we should rejoice then. He's saying rejoice in the Lord and your right standing with God. And the funny thing about this is that Paul actually expects us to push back really hard. Right? He expects us to say, okay, in light of what I'm going through, in light of the turmoil in my life, how can I rejoice in the Lord with all this junk going on? How can I be full of joy? What's the logic behind this? How is this possible? What can I know to be at peace? Paul expects us to ask these questions. And the answer is in the end of verse 5. Paul says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. If you take nothing away from what I'm saying this evening, the Lord is near. 
This is spatial nearness. This doesn't necessarily mean he's coming back tomorrow, right? Or we should live in anticipation. Jesus can come back anytime that he wants, right? But what Paul says is he is spatially near to us. He is right next to you at all times. The Lord Jesus Christ is close to us. All right, but let's tease this out for a second, right? You know, how can we be comforted knowing that the Lord is near? How does that help us out whenever life sucks, right? Um, if you've been a Christian for very long, um, it's a given that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere. But how should this thought that the Lord is near help us whenever life is crashing down around us and we're depressed and we despair? I came up with a few things that I think some implications of the nearness of God and just who God is that should bring us comfort. And the first one is God is not blind to your problems. He's not turned away from you. He knows exactly what's going on. Right? Actually, the Bible teaches us that God has placed the difficulties in our paths. Right? Like, like he, 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 he not only sees them, but he's actually put them there. And he's put them there to make us more like Christ. And we see that in James chapter 1. James writes, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So whenever we endure these things, that God has sent them in our way to test our faith, and the word purify actually means to burn out the imperfections like you would do with gold. So it might be painful, but God has put these things in our way so that we would grow to be more like Christ, so that we could be mature and perfect and need nothing. But here's the kicker we should always bear in mind. We'll never be perfect. We'll never be fully mature. We'll never need nothing in this life. So we can always expect trials and they're just going to continually make us more like Christ. So that's, that's one way that we could be comforted by knowing that God is near, is that he's not blind to our problems. Another one is this, God is not surprised by our problems. God is not surprised by your current situation or your current difficulty, right? He doesn't just know about your trials, but he controls them completely, right? He actually has planned them, and they're part of his design for us. We can go to Psalm 139, 16, and we see, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. So this, this was coming. God had had predestined you to go through this. He didn't just know, he doesn't just see, but this is for you. He wrote this before the foundations of the world were laying that you would go through this. So he's not surprised. Another, we see that at the same time that God is near to us, he is already in tomorrow. So I'm gonna get a little bit uh, theological, philosophical on you for a second. At the same time that God is near to us spatially, that he's right here with us as we go through whatever it is that we're going through, God is already in tomorrow. Whatever you create, you are above. You are outside of. If I created a cup, I'm not in the cup. I'm outside of the cup. I am over the cup. I'm its creator. God created time. God is what we call atemporal. He is outside of time. So he sees all of time at once. He's not restricted to time like we are. We have to go through it in a process, but God sees all of eternity past and all of eternity future at the same time, and he is present in all of it at the same time. It's kind of trippy, like matrixy, but that's, that's who God is. That's, he's above it, and he's in all of it. 
Right? And we see Revelation 21, 6, God calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that he holds everything. He's in it all, and he's already at the end, and he's already at the beginning. He is in everything. So God already knows the outcome. He's already in tomorrow. He's already with us tomorrow before we have even gotten there, and he's near to us. A fourth thing that we should take comfort in, knowing that God is near in our trials, is that everything is part of God's great plan. And I know that sounds like a cliche, like you see crap like that on Christian bumper stickers and crappy shirts you can buy at the Christian stores that sell bad CDs. Um, but we see everything is a, parting, is a part of God's great plan, and it's according to his will and his plan, not according to ours. It's according to his purposes for our lives, not our purposes. We can go to one of the most famous texts in all of the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight. Paul writes, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Everything. That's without exception. That's if someone dies or you get cancer. That's when things are going great and you just got married. That's whenever your entire life is going to fall apart or your entire life you're still on cloud nine. Everything, without exception. Everything means everything. And we can know this, with reference to God's good plan for everything, we know that Job 42.2 says that no purpose of God's can be thwarted ever. His good plan will go off without hitch, without incident, always. And that scares us. Because what if God's plan is not what I had in mind? What if God's plan is that I get sick? Or what if God's plan is that um, just like Job, just a a horde of bad things happen to me and I feel like I can't go on anymore? What if that's God's plan for me? Because I don't want that. I I don't want that. I know you guys don't want to have to go through trials or be upset or be stressed or be depressed. I know you don't want that. I don't want that. So what if that's God's good plan for us and somehow it's going to make us more like Christ and somehow it's going to be to our benefit and his glory? How can knowing that his plan goes off without hitch help us? That comes to the last thing and probably the most important thing. God is good and he loves his people. Those of us who are in Christ, he loves you unfathomably and he is unfathomably good in all that he does. We're going to hit a few Psalms. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Psalm 136.1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Psalm 119.68, You are good and do only good. Teach me your decrees. God is good. I could have spent an hour in the Psalms telling you all the places that the Bible says God is good and only does good. We could go on and on. This is one of the most frequently repeated facts about God in all of the Bible. He is good and he loves his people. We can't even truly fathom his goodness towards us, especially when we consider just how sinful we are, that we've been hostile against him, we've hated him and rebelled against him, and yet he still desires to show us his goodness and grace and love anyway. It's unfathomable. So we can boil all those five things that we took a look at, and in a nutshell, right, we can take why we should be comforted that the Lord is near and boil it down to two sentences. One, God is good. Two, God is sovereign. And when I say sovereign, I mean he is in complete control from the smallest molecule to the, to the biggest thing in all of creation. There is not one thing that God doesn't look over all creation and say, that is mine and I control it. 
There's not one situation, whether it be the worst thing or the best thing, that God doesn't say, I made that happen, and it's part of my plan. And I am good. That is the great hope that we have in God. Our God is huge. He is bigger than anything. He is stronger than anything. And he is in control of everything. And there is nothing greater. And no one loves us more than he does. And God's goodness and mercy and plan are on display most prominently whenever we consider the gospel. That our God loved us in spite of us and sent Jesus to reconcile us back to him through his death and resurrection. That was his good plan that Christ would suffer and bring about the salvation of untold numbers. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him, is what Isaiah says, and beauty came from it. And it was given to people who didn't deserve it and didn't even ask for it. So if God has shown us that kind of love and that kind of grace and that kind of power and control and sovereignty, then why would we not trust God to be good and sovereign in whatever situation that we're going through? Even in the midst of the worst times of your life, why would we not trust him then? Clearly, he is a God that will use the most bleak, awful things in order to bring about his goodwill. You know, if we get the gospel, if that's possible, right, if we get the gospel, if it hits our hearts and it hits our, it hits our hearts and it hits our mind, if we really get it, then all of our trust should be planted firmly in this good, sovereign God we truly understand the gospel. So since this good and powerful God is near, we should never be anxious. That's Paul's reasoning. The God that you serve is this much in control and this powerful, and he is right next to you, so you should never be anxious. That's why he says be anxious about nothing, right? But life will still get hard, right? Like knowing this fact doesn't change the fact that life's going to get hard and it's still going to beat us up. So, So what then? How is our joy to be protected? Paul says, don't be anxious because this Lord is near to you, but instead pray about everything. He says, by prayer, our joy is protected. And that sounds way, way too simple. At least for me, whenever I first think about that, like that sounds way too simple. You mean to tell me to pray and and I'll be cool, right? And I can protect my joy whenever I pray. Um, But Paul is saying that like whenever it hits the fan, right, because we're in church, whenever it hits the fan, that we are to take it to God. We're to take it to the one who is in control of everything and has placed this in our path, right? That the antidote to our fear, to our worry, to our despair is to give everything to the good sovereign Lord. All right, but how does prayer do that? Right, how is prayer the antidote to that? Well, first we have to establish what prayer is and what prayer is for. Uh, Simply put, prayer is communicating with God. It's approaching him like a loving father that he says that he is and that he is. It's it's approaching him like a loving father with all of our cares, with all of our hopes, with all of our fears, with all of our successes, our failures, everything. It's talking with him. It's seeking his will. It's reflecting on him for who he is and how faithful he's been to us and what he's done for us. Prayer is in this communication with God. It's about coming to terms with who God is and trusting him with your entire life. Um, That's why Paul says to pray about everything, to trust God with your entire life, everything from the smallest to the biggest. Paul actually uses um, four different words for prayer in this passage. He uses four different words, and that's to stress the point that you are to pray about every single thing, that you are to trust God and give all things to him in your life. But I've got to say this. 
Um, prayer is not, um, and this is what America has made prayer into, I'm going to change God's mind or I'm going to manipulate that sucker into doing my will. Right? That's what we've turned prayer into generally in the United States. I'm going to make him do what I want. Um, and God doesn't do that. His plans are his plans, and they always go off. If, if he wants us to endure trials, we can't stop them, right? And like I said, they're for our benefit after all, so kind of why would we want to stop them instead of just accepting them and, and growing? Right? But we don't change God. God doesn't change his mind. He, he tells Moses, I am that I am. I am who I am. I will be what I will be, not what you want me to be. I just am. And accept me. Right? So that's what prayer is not. But prayer is meant to change us. It's meant to conform us to God's will. It's meant to teach us to trust him completely, not, not the other way around. Right? That's what prayer does to us, is it changes us. It's for our benefit, not for us to change God. Again, he is who he is. You know, prayer changes us to accept God for God and to rely on him. It shows, and this is really cool to think about, prayer, whenever we go to God and we're asking him for help or we're asking him for something or we're asking him for peace or to settle something going on in our lives, we are acknowledging our complete lack of independence. And we're acknowledging our complete dependence on God to do his work. Prayer humbles us. It makes us like children so that we can see and recognize our Father. That's what prayer does. But Paul says something very cool about how we're to pray. Like this flips the script on everything, right? You're not just to go to God and complain about everything that's going on. Although you can do that. that that's, that's totally cool. That's not what we're supposed to do necessarily. Paul says that we are to pray with thanksgiving. That we're to pray with a thankful heart, right? But, but why and, and how do you do that, right? Because if you've ever been in the midst of, of, of some crap going down in your life, you know that it is nearly impossible to be thankful for the trial. It's nearly impossible to be thankful for the trial. And usually that only happens in hindsight, right? Where you can look back and say, God, thank you for saving me from that. Or thank you for making me grow in this way. All right, but I don't think that's what Paul is telling us to do. I don't think Paul is telling us to be thankful for the trial in and of itself. Um, again, although we should in some way be thankful because our faith is being purified. It's just a weird concept I keep going back to. I know that sounds weird. But I think Paul is actually telling us to do a form of count your blessings, right? As cheesy as that might sound, um, you know, and, and I say that because thankfulness, right? Thanksgiving, praying with thanksgiving. Thankfulness is a glad remembrance. This is really cool. Like, tune into this. Thankfulness is a glad remembrance of what God has done and everything that he has been for you, right? To, to remember and recognize that he has proven himself over and over and over again He's proven his love. He's proven his faithfulness to you whenever you weren't faithful to him. He's proved his compassion towards you, his mercy towards you, his grace towards you over and over and over. And I'll show you guys some some examples of this. The first one's the easiest. You live. You live. You breathe right now. You have friends. You have family. You have food. You have shelter, right? Like your needs are met and you're alive, right? Maybe your needs aren't met ideally, but you are alive, right? And James chapter 2 says everything that we receive is a gift from God. 
And again, it shows him to be gracious and and merciful uh, because in reality, we all deserve to die and we all deserve to be damned to hell. And yet, miraculously and graciously, God allows us to live. Right? If you're a Christian, miraculously and graciously, God has given you Christ to be your mediator to him with his sacrifice. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, miraculously and graciously, God has allowed you to live so far so that you might repent and believe in Jesus and not go to hell. The fact that you live is grace and mercy, and it proves God's love for you. Another thing we can look at to see God's mercy and compassion and love for us is, is the fact that he has seen you through other trials before. We'll, we'll call this a personal witness for now. You have a personal witness to the goodness of God. Or that you can look back in your life over things that you went through that you thought, this is the end. I don't know how I'm going to get past this, and yet God saw you through it. And Paul is saying he is near to you now, he was near to you then. He promises to be there with you through this as well. Right? And, you have, and he, has, he has precedence for being there for you in the past. Why would he not be there for you now? Right? And, and if that doesn't seem strong enough, then we can look at this. A biblical witness that God has seen others through greater difficulties than your present one. Right? We can go to the Bible and we can see that God got Israel out of slavery, that he rescued Rahab from death, that he rescued Jeremiah out of a literal pit where he was going to starve to death. We can see that he saved David from his enemies, that he worked through Esther to prevent and save Israel from genocide. We can see God is always faithful to his people. Even if you can't see it in your own life, you can look to the scriptures and see it there. He's always faithful to his people. Right? And these people that... that, that that God rescued, they weren't superheroes of the faith. I hate that idea. They weren't superheroes of the faith. They were just like you. They were sinners in need of God's favor and his mercy and God to do something. It was all God's doing, and the same goes for us in our present trials. You know, on and on throughout Scripture, we can see God's faithfulness to his people. We can see that he never forsakes us, and he always has a plan for us, even if it involves suffering. Right? And even if God's plan for us ends in death, because that happens a lot, even if God's plans for us end in death, we are ultimately rescued in death into the loving arms of Jesus, who is our ultimate goal and our salvation anyway. Right? And lastly, for proof that God loves you and has, and has just been faithful to you this whole time, is we can look to the cross. Always look to the cross. Everything always goes back to the cross. That God showed us his greatest mercy and his greatest grace to us. That while we were still hostile to him, while we were not worshiping him, while we were doing things our way, that we were ignoring him, worshiping ourselves, running our lives, and getting ourselves into a mess, that he would give us Jesus. He would give us Jesus' sacrifice to reconcile us back to him. That he would do that is incomprehensible mercy and love to us. So here's my question. Why then, if we can look to all these things, especially the cross, why then would God stop showing you this same grace and love now that you are in Christ if he showed you this love through Christ before you knew him? Why would he stop to be faith? Why, why would he stop being faithful to you now whenever he was faithful to you and loved you before you even knew who he was? He won't. He loves you. And everything is grace, even if we can't see how. You know, reflecting on God's goodness and his faithfulness to us incites us to pray. And it incites us to lay down our worries at his feet. He calls us his children and he says that he is near. 
right? And a thankful heart reminds us of his faithfulness to us, that we can trust him even at our darkest hour. He has proven his love for us so we can run to him always for anything. All right, so when we're remembering God's goodness and we're having a, a thankful heart and, and just, just basking in who he is and how faithful he's been, and when we're doing that and we're giving all of our cares, all of our worries to God, Paul says something happens. He says that we will receive peace, right? But, but I, don't want, I don't want you guys to get it twisted. Prayer is not a cathartic unloading on God, right? It's not like a psychological, I'm just going to tell my imaginary friend how I feel about everything, get it off my chest, like God's like this fake Dr. Phil, right? Like they, that's not what prayer is. That's not what Paul means. He doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to unload on God and you're just going to feel better because you got to get the crap off your chest, right? Paul means that God actually gives you peace, Right? And peace is this um, complete state of well-being, right? where chaos stops. Let me rephrase that. Peace is well-being of the inner person. I don't want you guys to think that if you pray, God's going to necessarily cure you or keep you from any physical harm, because that's a lie. Um, this is a complete state of inner well-being where chaos stops, where clarity ensues, where we can keep on. This peace is a calm that is otherworldly, right? It doesn't come, right? and don't get this twisted either, if I pray about this, God's going to tell me exactly what to do, and I'm just going to see a clear-cut line of the action that I should take. That's not true either, right? This kind of peace does not come from figuring out the answer to your problem or figuring out what you need to do in your situation. It doesn't come totally from knowing what to do or from reason, This peace comes from trust. That's where this comes from. Where we say, I don't have this at all. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no idea what the future holds. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I have no idea, but I trust myself to a God that does. And he is good. And he is sovereign still in the midst of this. This peace comes from trust. It's not natural. It's not from us. That's why Paul says it surpasses human understanding. That when everything is crashing, we can sit back and say, God is king and I am secure in him no matter what the outcome. That is a God-given holy peace and it doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to people who don't know Jesus because it comes directly from knowing Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know, again, that God sovereignly uses what appears to be hopeless to do his goodwill. And again, we can look at the cross. We can look and we can see, for Christians, we look at the cross and we see the Son of God has been murdered. What good can come from this? The death of God the Son. What could possibly come from this? But we know the beauty of the resurrection. That it was part of God's plan and beautiful things came from it. Right, this peace that comes from knowing God, who God is guards our hearts and our minds. Again, it guards our inner person. It stands like a soldier over us and it keeps us from despair in the darkest times. It fights off despair and it acts like a prison guard uh, for us and it keeps us lovingly chained to Christ by our glad remembrance of what he's done. It guards our hearts and our minds. God gives this peace to assure us again that he is near. 
Right? So if you're, if you're here tonight and, and you don't know Jesus, the Bible says to repent and believe the gospel. Believe that Christ died in your place for your sin and put all of your trust in that, that he came back from the dead and that has, has wiped your slate clean with God and that God will declare you righteous because Christ has, has suffered your punishment on the cross and that Christ gives you his righteousness because he was perfect. And the Bible says, believe that. You, know, you are a sinner and you're in need of a savior. Same as me, same as everyone in this room. You're in chaos and you need peace. And outside of Jesus, there is neither salvation nor peace. Outside of Christ, there is only the white hot wrath of God and chaos. Believe in him. And if you want to know more, or you want someone to talk to you, or, or you want to pray, or maybe you're not that far, maybe this something feels kind of right about this, or maybe I'm not insane, and you just want someone to talk to you, come, come see me or anyone that's going to be on this stage. We want to pray with you. We want to just talk to you more. Um, I'll give you my phone number. We can, we can talk about this. Um, but believe in Christ. And if you are here and you're a believer, I want you to be encouraged. Take hope. God is not far away. And whatever you're going through, I want you to know that he is near to you and that he will never forsake you, no matter how much of a mess that your life is, even if you're the reason that you've gotten so bad. God won't abandon you. He sees it all and he loves you anyway. He knew what he was buying with his son on the cross and he said, I will buy you anyway. Whenever God predestined you to be saved in the beginning, he knew what a wreck you were going to be and said, I love you anyway. He won't forsake you. Actually, God forsook his own son on the cross so that he would never forsake you. That's how we can rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice because we are in Christ and God is always near to us regardless of our situation. Be comforted if you're a follower of Christ. Guys, I'm, I'm calling us to pray. I'm calling us to pray. Pray more about everything. Pray for this church. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the unbelieving community around us. Pray about your job. Pray about your kids, your spouse, everything. Pray. The Bible tells us to cast your cares on the Lord. That means God wants your problems. He wants them. He wants you to acknowledge your dependence on him and your lack of ability to do anything. And let's face it, you control nothing in your life. You don't control if the sun comes up tomorrow. You don't control if you breathe your next breath. You control nothing. God just wants you to recognize that and give everything to him. And he wants you to rely on his goodness and his power and his will. And when you pray, pray with a heart of gratitude for everything that God's done for you, from your breath to your salvation. Everything. Everything has been given to us by a good and faithful God. So don't be anxious about life. Don't be anxious about your problems or what's going to happen in the future. Give it to Jesus. Pray. I'll leave you guys with, with this. I, I came across a quote 
uh, that really struck me hard, and I wanted to share this with you guys. But before we hit the quote, um, he uses this phrase, practical atheism. That's where you technically believe in God, but you essentially live as if he doesn't exist. He's a secondary or, or tertiary thought in your mind. Um, he's not the first thing on your mind whenever things go awry or in general. That's what practical atheism means, but let's check this out. Worry can be the delayed symptom of a practical atheism that grows from a persistent neglect of prayer and in an addictive belief in self-sufficiency. That's where worry comes from. I think that that's very solid. So admit your insufficiency to control anything and submit to God. Trust him to be the father to you that he says he is because he is in control and he is good to us. Go to him and receive the peace that only he can give us. And above everything, know this, he is near to you always. Let's pray. God, you are good to us better than we deserve ever. You are faithful to us whenever we are unfaithful to you. You've given us Christ. You give us breath. You give us clothing. You give us food and shelter. You give us family and friends. We can look to the cross and we can see that even in dark times that you are at work and that everything is a part of your good plan. God, help us to trust your good plan. God, let Relieve us from our worries and our anxiety by inciting us to prayer. Give us the peace that only comes from you. Give us direction and show us what to do in all things. And God, let us leave here with prayerful hearts, with hearts of thanksgiving for everything that you've done. Help us to pray more. Help us to tell people about the God who gives peace to his people. You're sovereign, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.